listening to you tonight. Psalm 105 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently in the book of Psalms. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and just wave to them, get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands and that way you can hear the Word of God and uh, read it as well, which allows it to have a double the impact. Psalm 105 is a celebration of the fact that God is faithful to his promises. You say, why would somebody need to write a psalm like that? (laughs) Well, there is a need. But it's a funny thing. I can grow so accustomed as a child of God. I've been walking with him since 1980. Get me my dentures. I have never known him one time not to be faithful to his promises. There were a moment or two where it looked a little iffy. But it was only because he needed a little more time to show me what he was really up to. And then I just say, Lord, you're too much what you're doing, the things that you're knocking out all at the same time. What if the God that we served was just faithful 50% of the time? That'd be better than the gods of this world. What if he was faithful 75% of the time? That'd be way better than anybody, any human being or any of the gods in this world. But he is faithful 100% of the time. And I'm glad I'm comfortable with that. I'm glad I'm used to that. I'm glad that that's my expectation concerning him because he wants it to be. But it should never mean that we become so accustomed to it that it doesn't continue, no matter how long we've walked with the Lord, to produce praise and worship and thanksgiving in our heart for the fact that the God that we serve is a God who is always faithful. And so the psalmist writes a psalm in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to celebrate his faithfulness. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. In other words, don't keep them a secret. <laughs> Let other people know about them. Sing to him. Sing, sing psalms to him. Let them know how blessed we feel, as we've just got an opportunity to do. Talk of his wondrous works. One of the great things about talking of his wondrous works, and by the way, you don't have to find another person to do that. You can talk to yourself. Some talking to yourself is safe. It's okay. When you're talking to yourself about the wondrous works of God, it's a great reminder. Maybe you don't have anybody else in your life except for here at church that you can talk with about the wondrous works of the Lord, and they would understand where you can talk to yourself. And one of the great things about talking to ourselves about the wondrous works of God is that we get to then enjoy it a second time. And that's one of the great things about reliving God's miracles and His wondrous works in our lives. We get to enjoy it the first time, but every time we talk about it, it's like we're right back there again. We were right there on Pirates of the Caribbean again, the vacation, kind of humanly speaking or physically speaking. He said, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done. And you just head right through those um, uh, first six verses. Well, let me read the rest of it here. His wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant. You children of Jacob, his chosen ones. And so as you uh, read through here, he says, Give thanks, call upon, make known, sing to him, talk of him, glory in his holy name. Seek, seek, remember. And so there's there's this recognition that the psalmist is just bubbling over with excitement over God's 
faithfulness to him in his in his life, and so thankful for that. And and as he closes there in verse five, saying, "Remember the, his marvelous works that he has done." One particular characteristic of uh, that marked uh, uh, one particular characteristic of God of God that dominates his mind at the moment of writing this psalm is concerning the faithfulness of the Lord in his life. Remember the marvelous works which he has done. There is no greater use of memory than to remember the works that the Lord has done in our life. Now, that's a sanctified memory. A lot of memories are a waste of time. I was driving with my wife yesterday, and we were talking about, as remember when I worked for the phone company, in those early years, they bring you in at a certain pay depending on how much experience you had. And then you've got a family and all these different kinds of things and all. And I think I worked the first couple of years there, the first couple of winters uh, for the phone company outside as a, cable, uh, as a lineman. And I worked outside in the rain, the freezing cold. We were driving through Benicia. And I said, I drove over here so many times. The wind would just blow off of that bay, and I'd about die up on those poles. And and I just I I I was telling her I said I looking back now I'd have done anything I could have done to buy rain gear. But I didn't do that. You're young. You think you don't have the money. All those kind of things. And I was just thinking back on it while we were driving, just shivering. You know, while I reached over to hit the button for the seat warmer on the car. (laughs) Now I'm all old and soft. (laughs) What a wasted time of memory. We spend so much time just remembering, and it was just like, okay, let's get off of that thought. We've already been there and done that. No need to remember all of that. There's never wasted time to remember how faithful God has been to us. And his acts of faithfulness in our life, uh, in our past. And so the psalmist, what he does in Psalm 105 is he takes us and, and the people of his day. Remember, this is the Jewish uh, hymnal. And he takes us all down a memory lane of recounting God's faithfulness to the children of Israel. That God remembers and that God does keep his Promises, And he begins by talking about God's faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is, uh, he is the Lord our God. I love that line. He is the Lord our God. That's my God. And his judgments are on all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. When he makes a promise, he, then he remembers that promise. And what did he promise to Abraham? He promised to Abraham that he would make a nation of Abraham and that he would bring Abraham into a promised land, into the land of Canaan. He gave the promise to Abraham. And then against all odds, all human odds, God kept that promise. We read the volume of the book in the same way. Every promise that he has given us in the book, he will keep it against all human odds. So that was the covenant that he made with Abraham, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac, and he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant saying, I will give you the land of Canaan as an allotment for your inheritance when they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, wandering from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. And we remember Abraham. He would go here and he'd make this bad decision. And it didn't characterize his life, but he made a couple of pretty bad decisions. Put him in a doghouse with Sarah, I'll tell you that. Some of you remember that old harem thing. Oh, my. Did he owe her flowers on their anniversary every year for the rest of their lives? And yet God was faithful to them, protected them, because he was going to keep the promise. And then in verse 16, he begins to talk about 
recount God's faithfulness to the children of Israel while they were in Egypt. Moreover, he called for a famine in the land, and he destroyed all the provision of bread. And he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. And they hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons until the time that his word came, came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him, and the king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free. And he made him lord of his house and ruler of his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. And so he raised up, God raised up uh, Joseph in the land of uh, Egypt, become the second most powerful man in the world at that time, uh, in order to uh, keep the people alive through a very great uh, famine that went on for 14 years at that time in the, the Middle East, but also to preserve the, uh, the God's people, to preserve uh, Jacob and his sons in order that God's plan of salvation, that is to bring us a Savior into the world through their bloodline, all of that could be preserved. And whatever God had to do behind the scenes to keep his word to them, to bring a Savior, you folks aren't going to go extinct, no matter how bad the famine goes, no matter how empty the cupboard goes. Give us this day our daily bread. He's going to feed us and keep us uh, going in, in this, faithful to his promises. And then he made a great nation of them while they were in Egypt. Verse 23, Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham, and he uh, increased, that is, God increased his people greatly. Remember when the children of Israel went into Egypt, they didn't go in as slaves. They were invited in by Pharaoh, and they weren't a nation at that point in time. They just numbered 70 people. They were just a good-sized clan in those days, just a good-sized family, the way that things operated in those days. And yet God brought them into Egypt in order that they might be in that incubator uh, 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 for those years and then go from being a family to becoming a nation, a nation ready to take possession of the land uh, of Canaan. And they ultimately, when they left, they numbered between two and three million. And so God brought them into the land. He greatly increased into Egypt. He greatly increased his people. Well, he increased his people greatly. You say it any way you want and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his service, servants. And then his faithfulness in, uh, through sending Moses to them, he sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians and wonders in the land of Ham. And then he lists these different plagues that God brought on the land in order to produce the redemption of his people out of the land of Egypt. He sent darkness and he uh, made it dark. And they did not rebel against his word. Uh, they recognized that, that these miracles were from God. He turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. As you remember, their land abounded with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. And he spoke and there came swarms of flies. I mean, all of us can think, okay, which one is the worst? But boy, they're all terrible. You think, what could be worse than flies? And then there's lice. And lice in all of their territory. And he gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck their vines also and their fig trees and splintered the trees of their territory. He spoke and locusts came, young locusts without number. And they laid, ate up all the vegetation in their land. They devoured the fruit of their ground. He also destroyed all of the firstborn in their land, the first of their strength. He brought them out with silver and gold. Remember the children, the Egyptians said, Go, go, let us give you our wealth. Just go. And there was none feeble among his tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. Now you think about that. Here is Egypt. They've got a, a slave labor force of between two and three million people. Now, when you've got when you've got two or, when you've got two or three million people, that's like free labor. You can do some stuff. You might build a sphinx or some pyramids or something. So you can you can do amazing things. 
And so when they ultimately, God brought them out of Egypt, Pharaoh realized, wow, we just lost this labor force that I've been able to use to make this one of the great nations in human history. And he regretted it and he wanted to get them back. But you think about all that God did in order to make the most powerful nation in the world at that time willing to let go of this slave force that was made up of his people. And there's nothing, uh, God can do anything. And we put the needs that we have in our life tonight. God said, all right, I'm going to take you. I've got a promise to Abraham. You're going to end up in the promised land. There they are in Egypt. And it looks like we're all, it's going to be forever in Egypt. No one will never, God's promises not going to come to pass related to that. Sometimes circumstances in our lives can rise up and we think that's not going to happen. God, you're not going to be faithful to that promise. And yet, if God has to humble the most powerful nation in the whole wide world to be faithful to one promise in your life, your individual life, then He will do it. Because if His promise is untrue related to your individual life, then it makes God a liar just as fully as if he was untrue to an entire nation. So his reputation is bound up in his faithfulness to his promises to you and me. And since the Bible says he cannot lie, it's not that he, the the Bible doesn't promise that he will not lie. I would accept that. But the Bible says God who cannot lie, he's incapable of lying, has said. And so these promises to us are true. God will keep them whatever is required in order to be faithful. And then he begins to speak about their wandering in the wilderness uh, from Egypt to the promised land. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. And And so the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. The people asked and he brought quail uh, to feed them. He satisfied them with the bread of heaven manna. He gushed the, opened the rock and water gushed out. These wonderful miracles that occurred in their uh, wilderness experience uh, even before they failed and were out there 40 years. And it ran in the dry places like a river. And then, it, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant and he brought out his people with joy his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles, just as he had promised, and they inherited the labor of the nations that they might observe his statutes and keep his promises. And so God was faithful to his promises, and then he closes in verse 45, saying God did all of that, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. What's the greatest way to express our thanksgiving and our appreciation to God for His faithfulness in our lives, our obedience. Jesus said, do you love me? Obey my commandments. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Do you want to bless my heart? Do you want to express thanksgiving and appreciation in the way that's the most meaningful to me, just obey my commandments. And so the psalmist closes with that same kind of important reminder as, as they're thinking, the people reading through the psalm and thinking, my, this is what God, and then my life is the same kind of life and testimony and God's faithfulness. How in the world could I bless Him just by obeying His commandments? Now, this psalm is intended to be a great encouragement to our faith and, and great encouragement to our trust in the faithfulness of God. And I think it's good to just stop and remember. If we could just take one moment before we head into the next song. Just take one moment and remember from our own life one great thing that God did for you in the past. One miracle. Because I think of ten all at once. Well, just get it down to one. There's one great miracle that he's done, and then to meditate upon that, his faithfulness, and and then the desire then to worship him and give him praise for it. God is faithful. God is 
faithful, and we can believe it. And we can say that to ourselves. My God is faithful. My God is unfailingly faithful. And you know why we can say it? Because he is. Because he is. Psalm 106. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Now, Psalm 106 is an interesting psalm. It's a psalm that reminds us that God's grace is greater than all of our sins. Now, Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 are kind of a pair. Psalm 105 tells of how God, uh, of God's faithful treatment of the children of Israel. And then Psalm 106 tells of how Israel treated God. And how Israel treated God was very, very badly. And, and so they kind of uh, pair together here a little bit. And so, but, but there is the theme of the psalm, uh, the, the reminder that God's grace is greater than all of our sin. And as you go through the psalm, you might look at it, and, and as, as we read all of the ways that they failed them over and over and over again, deliberately and painfully to his heart, and you, you look at a psalm like this and you think, boy, a psalm like this is dangerous. Because, I mean, if you have a psalm that has the theme that God's grace or His mercy, you notice verse 1, it's the theme. Give thanks to the Lord for He's good, for His mercy endures forever. Our sin doesn't endure forever. His mercy endures forever. And there's something about man that looks at that, religious man, and says, you're going you're gonna to play fast and loose with God's grace and with His mercy, and you're going to tell God's people that His forgiveness and His grace and mercy is greater than our sin, then you're just going to develop a whole bunch of people who are casual about sin, and you're going to end up with a carnal congregation. I don't believe it. What's the alternative? To put a volume together that sits this thick of rules and regulations to try and keep people in line and make Christianity something other than a response to grace. It's interesting that when Paul preached grace, God's unmerited favor, he preached it with such strength that people were then looking looking at it and they had a concern that that's going to be used by sinners to become casual about sin. But Paul would not back away from the strength of God's grace. I'll tell you why it's never dangerous to emphasize God's grace to God's people. Because the hardest thing to sin against is grace and love. The hardest heart that has any spiritual life inside of them, sooner or later, their heart will break over their behavior and their abuse of God's grace until they feel terrible about themselves and ultimately come to repentance. And the thing of it is, is if grace and God's love will not break a hard heart, then nothing can break a hard heart. So you abandon that and you abandon everything. Now we've just got a religious show going on here where we're going to enforce outward behavior. But here's this, here's this emphasis upon the grace of God. His grace is greater than all of our sin. And what it does is we receive that grace from the Lord over and over again and makes us love Him more than ever, makes us appreciate Him more than ever, it makes us want to be like Him more than ever, it makes us want to obey Him more than ever, and little by little then we find ourselves being sanctified and being made holy in response to His grace. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? And who can declare his praise? Blessed are those who keep justice and he who does righteousness at all times. The psalmist confesses sin now in verse 4. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have toward your people. 
Oh, visit me with your salvation, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. We have sinned, and so apparently the children of Israel at the time of the writing of this psalm, they were uh, sinning in the psalmist's day just as much as the fathers, fathers in their history had, had sinned. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. So maybe the psalm was written in the face of all of the wickedness and the sin of Judah and Israel, northern kingdom of Israel, before they went into bondage to the Assyrians and the Babylonians. We don't really know. Now, Psalm 106 is a confessional uh, psalm. It is a a psalm in which the psalmist is confessing his sin to the Lord. And you notice the strength with which he confesses his sin and the sin of his nation to the Lord. Verse 6, we have sinned with our fathers, we have committed iniquity, and we have done wickedly. Sinned, iniquity, wickedly. In 1 John 1, 9, it's known as the Christian bar of soap. And, and the Bible, uh, in 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess in that verse is an interesting one because it means more than just saying, God, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. I used to go to confessional on Saturdays. And uh, I don't know why I would even make up sins as if I wasn't bad enough. What a kid. And that word confess means more than just saying, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did that. The word confess means to say the same thing. And to confess sin means to say the same thing about my sin that God says about it. In other words, I call it sin. And if it's iniquity, I call it iniquity. And if I call it, if it's a great wickedness, then I call it a great wickedness. No excuses and no blame shifting and, and renaming it or calling it a mistake or all the things that we do in the culture today uh, that ends up not being a solution to sin at all. And I think it's important to realize that when we sin against someone, including the Lord, that when we approach them to ask them for forgiveness, that we ask for that forgiveness with a, an apology that is every bit as strong as our offense against them. And that's what the psalmist uh, does here. I had something happen to me a few months ago that was interesting. Hadn't happen, had something like this happen to me in a long, long time. I had a guy get in my face in a massive way. And I mean, he began to just bellow in this whole big thing. And I mean, he dressed me down verbally like I don't know that I've ever been dressed down in my entire life, including as a kid in Mr. Templeton's office, my my elementary school principal. But he really, really let me have it. I didn't know him hardly at all. And he doesn't go to this church and and he's not a Christian, doesn't have anything to do with this church or anything at all. If I hadn't been a Christian, and I thought to myself while he's going on and on, I thought to myself, you should be so thankful that I'm a Christian because if I wasn't, I would kill you with my bare hands right now or die trying to. That's how bad it was. In God would not let me do anything. It was like an out-of-body experience. I just stood there and just listened to all of it just pour out. I mean, just the most hurtful, hurtful, terrible, terrible things. And the only thing that came out of my mouth 
from the book of Proverbs, I said something, a soft answer to what he had said, because the Bible says that that turns away wrath. God wouldn't even let me talk. And he got done, and there was a little bit of an audience. Two or three other people had watched it, which made it worse. And he got done, and I turned around, and I walked away. And I tell you, I was very, very confused by the whole experience. I said, Lord, this is so irrational and so crazy that this just, this has to be something of the devil. I mean, just to hurt me or to provoke me or distract me from your call on my life in some kind of a way or something. And then it happened. I didn't do anything with it. I left it in the Lord's hands. I didn't know what to do with it. And then I got an email from the man. And he gave, sent me an email that was so strong, it, the apology and the confession of wrongdoing was just as strong is the violation that he had committed against me. We met a few days later at his invitation. And then he started to want to go into the whole thing about how bad, how bad all of that was. He can't believe that he did that, the whole thing. <laughs> and I stopped him. I said, you know, you have done a very rare thing. It isn't very often in life that someone's apology and asking for forgiveness is a strong and even stronger than the original violation, and you did that. And I walked away from that, and I said, oh, this is a life lesson that's going on here because this isn't just about him and me. I really just registered it into my own heart for my future dealings with people and how important that is to setting people free. You may be in a situation tonight where you have just done something against someone, some parent or some child or some this or that, and what it is that you came back with hasn't even begun to accomplish any kind of healing in that circumstance because it isn't a true confession of sin with that kind of strength that then allows real healing to occur. And I love this particular verse in the psalm, verse, uh, verse 6, because of its strength and because of the strength of the lesson that it teaches us. And he begins to go through their history. Verse 7, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. And they did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but they rebelled by the, Reds, by the sea, the Red Sea. And you remember, God got them out of Egypt, ten plagues. And then they, as they got out of Egypt and they came to the Red Sea and they were caught in this place and Pharaoh's armies coming down on them, they acted as if those ten plagues had, God had never done a miracle before in their whole life. And they said to Moses, why in the world did you take us out of the land of Egypt so that we could die out here in the wilderness? And they complained against God there. And that's the rebellion that was being spoken of. And what did God do? God in His grace... Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. And he rebuked the Red Sea also, and he dried it up. And so he led them, uh, through, led them through the depths as though in the wilderness. So that Red Sea just threw it right on dry land. And it tells us there that, that he did it in verse 9, he did it for his name's sake. They, he didn't do it for their sake. They didn't give him any reason to do the miracle. And when God can't find a reason to be faithful to his word found in us, he will do it just to preserve his own reputation as being our God. And, that, and because he is the God that he is, he's the God of the Bible that differentiates him from all of the gods in the whole wide world, which are really not gods. And he saved them from the land of, of him who hated them, and he redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their enemies. That Egyptian army pursued into the Red Sea. God caused the Red Sea to close up over them. Boy, armor is a bummer at that point. And there was not one of them left, and they believed his word, and they sang his praise. 
But soon they forgot his works, and they did not wait for his counsel. But then they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness, and they tested God in the desert, and he gave them their request, but sent leanness to their souls. And so this event refers to what happened at Kibroth Hatavah. Kibroth Hatavah? What are you talking about? That's the place where they got sick of manna. Manna, I want manna, everyday manna. Manna in the morning. Man in the evening, man at supper time. <laughs> How many of you are thinking it? <laughs> I'm tired of it. My manna splits. Manicotti. I'm just saying, what are we going to do? I want some flesh. I want some meat. And they were dissatisfied with God's provision in their life, and they wanted flesh. They wanted meat. So God gave them the meat, but he also sent leanness to their soul in addition to a plague that God only stopped with His grace. And then it continues, Korah's rebellion. And then they, the children of Israel with Korah, they envied Moses and the camp and Aaron, the saint of the Lord. You remember Korah, he looked and he said, Moses, who's this big shot Moses? And then he makes his brother the high priest and all, all of this nepotism going on all around and everything. Wait a second, what about the rest of us? I could lead this group as well as Moses could. I could be a high priest as good as Aaron. And so Korah led a rebellion against their authority. But he didn't quite understand something. And what he didn't understand or he didn't appreciate was the fact that Moses and Aaron were in their position because God had called them to that position. And when God calls a man or a woman to a position in his work in human history, no rebellion of man will ever be successful in removing them. You may remove them from a church, but you'll not remove them from effectiveness for the kingdom of God. And so what they didn't realize is that Moses was being obedient to God's call upon his life only after he had tried to do everything he could to get out of the calling. Moses didn't self-promote himself into the position. And so Korah, he envied Moses. And, and then there were other families, the families of Abiram, the families of Dathan. They joined Korah. And then there were 300 uh, men that came also that were a part of the of the uh, the rebellion, and they called for a showdown with Moses and Aaron to see whose side is God on and all of that. And you remember there in the book of Numbers that while they're there, suddenly the earth opened up, verse 17, swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram. That's, that's what, he covered the faction of Abiram. That's a very King James way of saying the whole wor- the earth opened up, swallowed up him, his whole family who was in on it, and then closed. Or you could say, and covered the faction of Abiram, which is what happened. So God put the end. And then those remember those 300 guys? They all had the shields. They had the censers that were there, censers rather made, and, and all. And they're there, and they're a part of the rebellion. They had to be thinking, oh, no. And God sent a fire out, and he destroyed all of them. That's how you take care of a, a rebellion. <laughs> really fabulous, actually. And, uh, and the fire was kindled in their company, and the flame burned up the wicked. And then he moves on in verse 19 to talk about when they made uh, the golden calf, Aaron, he wasn't perfect, was he? And so he made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molded image, and thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. I love that line. What was their glory? God was their glory. Why was God their glory? He delivered them from the bondage of Egypt unbelievably. He did that wonderful thing. And here is Aaron, he fashions this calf, golden calf, calf out of the gold from their earrings, tells the children of Israel, this is the God that delivered you out of Egypt. And so they're giving the glory, taking it away from God and putting it on a golden calf. And the Lord describes then the calf as the image of an ox that eats grass. It's personal life. <laughs> and they forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt. 
It was a terrible thing that they did to God there. And wondrous works in the hands of, in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. And therefore, uh, he said, God did that he would destroy them because of this golden calf incident. And had not, Mo, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach, he prayed to the Lord that God would be gracious and spare them. Otherwise, they would have been destroyed. And as a result of Moses' intercession, to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. And then he moves in verse 24 to Kadesh Barnea where they believe the ten spies, false witness about the land. If we go into the promised land, we're like grasshoppers. There's giants in the land. We can never do it, despite the fact that God had said, promised that they would do it. He would go with them. So they elevated the unbelief of these ten unfaithful spies over the Word of God and made a terrible decision, another great failure in their history. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word, but they complained in their tents and did not heed the voice of the Lord. We're going to die if we go in there. We're all going to die. That's what they were saying in their tents. Wonderful faith to represent, you know, to say before the kids, you know, the evening devotional. And therefore he raised up his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their descendants among the nations and to scatter them in the lands. In other words, God judged them by not allowing that generation into the land. And then further in their history, you go to Numbers chapter 25 and the great uh, incident concerning Baal of Peor, uh, Balaam and Balak and all. They joined themselves to Baal of Peor. They ate sacrifices made to the dead. And then they provoked him to anger with their deeds. And the plague broke out among them. And that was when uh, Balaam told Balak how to bring destruction on the children of Israel by having them go in and, and worship the Moabite gods while engaging in sexual immorality with the Moabite women and all. God judged it by... Breaking, bringing a plague out upon the children of Israel. That plague was only stayed when Phinehas stood up and he intervened and the plague was stopped and that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. And then as if there wasn't, that wasn't enough, he then goes on and talks about their rebellion and complaining at Kadesh they angered God also at the waters of strife so that it went ill with Moses on account of them because they rebelled against his spirit so that he spoke rashly with his lips. And that was when they began to complain about no water and all of this. God said, speak to the rock. But Moses had about had it with these people and he struck the rock a second time and that got him in the doghouse with the Lord. But here the psalmist brings out their responsibility uh, in that scene, though God held Moses responsible for uh, his own reasons. They did not, verse 34, the period of the judges now, they did not destroy the peoples when they went in. The conquest of the land was incomplete, despite what God told them to do, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them. But they then, not only did they not uh, destroy the people of the land, but they then mingled with the Gentiles that they allowed uh, to remain. They learned their works. They served their idols, which was the very thing God wanted to avoid, which became a snare to them. And they even went so far as sacrificing their sons and their daughters to demons and to shed innocent blood, the blood of their own sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds. A very, very dark season uh, in their history. And therefore the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people so that he abhorred his own inheritance. He gave them into the land uh, of the uh, hand of the Gentiles, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their uh, hand. Many times he delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel, and they were brought low for their iniquity. And nevertheless, he regarded their affliction. Again, his grace in this period of the whole cycle of bondage and 
in the, in the book of Judges. He regarded their affliction when he heard their call, and for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the multitude of his mercies, and he also made them to be pitied by all who carried them away captive. And then the psalmist now cries out for deliverance to the Lord in verse 47, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the Gentiles and give thanks to your holy name to triumph in your praise. And then he closes the psalm with praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting and let all of the people say amen. And so he uh, closes the psalm, uh, Psalm uh, 106 here. After... And as he closes it here, he, he does so in there in verse 47 after recounting this long history of the nation's sin and of God's discipline uh, of the nation of Israel, of the people of Israel. The psalmist then prayed that God would regather the nation into the land from all of the Gentile nations that they had been dispersed into because of, of their sin. And so he's writing from some period in time in which the children of Israel are in captivity uh, because of their sin. And then he's asking God to give them another chance to fulfill their purpose as, as, the, uh, as God's people in human history and to, to give uh, to, uh, another opportunity to give thanks to the Lord and to bring glory to his name. And the psalm really teaches us an important lesson. And remember, it's a confessional psalm. And what it teaches us, again, is it has to do with mercy, is that our confession of sin to God and repentance from the sin that we've committed allows God's mercy to have the final say in our lives. Again, verse 1 of the psalm. His mercy endures forever, not our sins. And God's grace is greater than all of our sins. And that's the theme of the psalm. There's no sin that is greater than God's ability and even His desire to forgive when we come to Him by confessing that sin to Him in repentance. He really is the God of second chances and third and fourth chances. But the psalmist is bringing out the importance of not being casual about sin, but he's speaking about this in the context of confessing sin to God, repenting of past sin, saying, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be what my forefathers have been. I want to be something uh, different. And that God hears that prayer and and he extends forgiveness and mercy and grace to that request. And then in Psalm 107. Just a nice thing about being older. When I was a new pastor, I'd never do this. But now I don't care what anybody thinks. He's trying to figure out, does he go on and do the next psalm or doesn't he do the next psalm? We're going to just read through it here. Psalm 107. Beautiful psalm, celebration of God's power to redeem or to deliver. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For, that's a reason word. He is good and he is, he's unfailingly good. For, that's a reason word. His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. It's not enough to have had God's goodness and to have God's mercy 
brought into our lives, expressed in our lives, it's important for us uh, to acknowledge it and speak of it to the Lord, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. And so here's this celebration of, of just thanks being given to God for God's deliverance of the children of Israel uh, from a previous a bondage that they were in, probably their Babylonian uh, captivity. And then in verse 4, he begins to describe all of the various distresses that God is able to, li- to deliver his people from. He said, they wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted in them. And so he likens Israel to a person that's lost in the desert and God delivered them. And yet it's a beautiful picture of a New Testament saying, do you remember wandering in the wilderness? There's a great passage when Paul writes to the Ephesians and he speaks to the Ephesians about literally in the original language meandering in this world before we came to know Christ. And meandering means to be aimless. Wherever the wind was blowing, that's the direction that we went in. This aimless life in which we were spiritually thinking, we were in in verse 5 as he describes, hungry and thirsty, spiritually completely unsatisfied. Their soul fainted within them. But again, we recognize that God delivered us out of an even worse condition. He delivered them out of a physical condition. Like that, He delivered us out of a spiritual condition like that. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them out of their distresses, and He led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness, for His wonderful works to the children of men, for He satisfies the longing soul and He fills the hungry soul with goodness. Is your soul satisfied? (laughs) My soul is satisfied. I love that word. My wife has a license plate holder on on her vehicle, and I think it says, Loving and living for Jesus And then it says, satisfied. (laughs) I'll tell you, I'm satisfied. There's nothing that I look at in the world and I say that that I can look at and say, that produces a dissatisfaction in my heart concerning the life that I have that God has given me. He satisfies the deepest needs in our life. He satisfies, again, verse 9, the longing soul, and he fills the hungry soul with goodness. And then he likens Israel to um, a prisoner whose caught is in irons in the darkness of a, of a deep place within a prison. He said those who sat, and yet God delivered them out, out of that. God delivered them out of the wilderness. He delivered them. Uh, God delivered the children of Israel out of their various bondages that they went into the other nations. And so those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the word of God and despised the counsel of the Most High, therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. And again, spiritually speaking, I can't, as it speaks about us being in the darkness of the prison that we were in before we came to know Christ. And as it describes here, because they rebelled against the Word of God. Disobedience to God's Word always leads us into bondage. It's imprisonment. Because the world nurtures disobedience to God's Word And disobedience to God's word always results in bondage to sin and bondage to self. The smallest prison in the whole wide world is this skin that is around all your vitals. And it is only obedience to the Lord and walking with him that delivers us from bondage. But he has done it. 
And they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses, and he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. He broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the, and for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he has broken the gates of bronze to cut the bars of iron in two. Wouldn't it be interesting if God spoke to us tonight? He's not going to do it, so don't be alarmed. If God put his finger on which one of us, of all of us in this room, that has the story of being delivered out of the greatest bondage in the greatest darkness and being delivered out of that darkness and into his glorious light, as the Bible says. Sometimes you wish you could know every person's story, and yet God has the power, verse 16, to break the gates of bronze and to cut the bars of iron in two. It's a miracle that we've been freed from sin and self in order to worship and to know the Lord. You know, they make these movies so that you get a great book maybe on World War II or some other kind of thing where they go into some prison and they do this raid and they extract somebody out of that prison. And as you're watching the movie or reading the book, you can't put it down. You're on the edge of your seat. I mean, what's going to happen next? And it's one of the most amazing things to witness. It would be fascinating if there was like a five-minute video of what happens in the spiritual realm at the moment that Christ reached in to your prison and my prison that we made for ourselves and pulled us out of that. And what demonic forces he yanked our lives out of their hands how he cast them to the side, what was involved in that tremendous deliverance of his, of our life. And he's able to do it. And he did it for the children of Israel and he does it for us as well. He's a great deliverer and we celebrate the fact that he's a delivering God. Tonight I'll tell you, I do. Fools because of their transgressions and because of their iniquities were afflicted. And their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. And he sent his word, and he healed them, and he delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the... For to the children of men, let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing, his ability to deliver us from death. And Christ has delivered us from death. He who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you, are you alive tonight? Do you believe in him tonight? Then you'll never die. You've been delivered from death. This is a great deliver that we're talking about and worshiping tonight. And then he talks about how he's able to deliver sailors. And it isn't just sailors, but he chooses sailors here. He delivers them when life becomes overwhelming to them in their area of expertise. They're out on the sea. They know the sea. It's the one thing they know best in life. And yet in that area of our life that we are the best at, we're the most competent at, we have the most history in that, sooner or later that part of our life goes sideways too. And God is greater than the storms that can arise in that area of our life. He's a storm stiller. The God that we serve is a storm stiller. And Jesus did it in the New Testament. Peace be still. He said to the storm, and immediately the storm was quieted. And remember those disciples? So many of them skilled, experienced fishermen. And yet here was a storm that had them afraid for their life. And they discovered they needed a God who would be a God even in their area of greatest strength because our strength is not enough in any area of our life. And Jesus proved himself to be that. 
And he'll be that to us as well. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. And he commands and raises the stormy uh, wind. And he lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. I'm getting seasick reading it. Their their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man. And they are at their wit's end. And then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. And then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. And then he turns to celebrating the Lord's sovereignty, how God is able to uh, make nature. He rules over nature and he rules over rulers. And basically what he says in the rest of the psalm is how he is able to, when God's people are obedient to him, he is able to use nature to bless them. When they're disobedient, he is able to use nature to bring discipline into their life. And he turns rivers into into a wilderness which you don't want to have happen, and the water springs into dry ground. You don't want that to happen, not in Modesto and certainly not in the Middle East. A fruitful land in the barrenness for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. But then when there's obedience, he turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. There he makes the hungry dwell that they may establish a city for a dwelling place and sow fields and plant vineyards that they may yield a fruitful harvest. He also blesses them and they multiply greatly and he does not let their cattle decrease. And then concerning his sovereignty over people, when they are diminished and brought low through oppression and affliction and sorrow, he can pour contempt on princes or the leaders of the nation that lead the the nation into oppression and affliction and sorrow and then causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. And yet he also has the ability to set the poor on high in their obedience far from affliction and he makes their families like a flock and the righteous see it and rejoice and all iniquity stops its mouth. And then he says, whoever is wise will observe these things and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. In other words, a wise person will keep themselves in a place of obedience to God in order that we can then allow him to use his sovereignty and his almightiness in the way that he desires to, and that is to bless us. Jude, the book of Jude, one single chapter in it, but it has a verse in there, keep yourself in the love of God. And as we obey God's word, we, then we are cooperating and keeping ourselves in the place that God can bless us as fully as he wants. There's an old hymn that was uh, written, and one line, <clears throat> line excuse me, in the old hymn is, stand under the spout where the blessings come out. That's what Jude is saying. And obedience just plants me right on the X. And I look, here come the blessings. That's all I'm going to get in this spot. And so that's what the psalmist is saying, to think about that. God wants to use his sovereignty and his almightiness in order to bless us. And obedience allows him to do that. And so the theme of the psalm in Psalm 107, and it's a beautiful theme, is that God is a delivering God. And there is no one and there is no thing that is beyond his ability to deliver or beyond his desire to deliver. Again, a fact that we can take for granted. Isn't it wonderful, those of us who are in the kingdom of light, to realize that as we share the gospel of salvation in Christ, we can do it to anyone. If they are six-generation occult, I don't care. 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will come into you and He will do the same miracle that He did in me. That confidence that we have in the delivering power of God. What if there was no God to deliver us out of our foolishness? What if there was no God in human history to deliver us out of our bondage and out of our darkness? Well, there'd be no hope, would there? But the psalmist celebrates because there is a God and there's only one God who is able and willing to deliver. Why do you think I'm safe tonight? (laughs) Because he's able and he's willing to save. And it's the same reason that you're saved here tonight. And if you sit here this evening and you are not yet a Christian, you will not be a hard case for God. You will be a hard case for everybody else, but you won't be a hard case for God. God spoke through Jeremiah and he said, I am the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? And the answer is no. And praise the Lord that the answer is no. He's a delivering God, and we give him praise for that tonight. Now, I know I've always already got us over just a little bit here tonight. And some of you are thinking, yes, you made a bad decision <laughs> earlier this evening. Will you pray for me? But I'd like the worship team to come up, and I'd like them to lead us in a song or two. Before we leave these precious, powerful psalms tonight, I don't want us to leave them without an opportunity to respond to them verbally to the Lord and allow Him to hear our praise and our thanksgiving tonight for His faithfulness to us. His faithfulness to us. And to give Him praise and to give Him worship for being the deliverer that He is And that we don't just know it because it's written in the book, but we know it by personal experience. We'll let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let's give him praise tonight for who he is and what he's done in each of our lives that knows him tonight.